Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Manuscript in the Age of Print, second panel session of the morning. Um, I organized this session, I'm Marissa Nicosia, and I organized this session with Rachel Scarborough King, another fellow who is also, um, happens to be running a conference on news at the Huntington right now, and is, is terribly sad she couldn't be here. Uh, this panel comes from a series of ongoing conversations that Rachel and I have been having together and with a larger community of scholars who are interested in the interaction between manuscript in print uh, and print um, rather than the displacement of one media form over the other. Uh, Rachel ran a Mellon Symposium at UC Santa Barbara in 2015 that um, dealt with these uh, particular sets of issues and also involved me and Margaret and Emily who you'll be hearing from today. Um, but, and that work is going to uh, hopefully result in a publication. It got some favorable reviews. Um, it is my pleasure, first of all, to introduce our moderator and to get things going. Our moderator, Margaret Izell, is a distinguished professor of English at Texas A&M University. She's fascinated by issues arising from English manuscript culture in her work and is curious about its intersections with oral and print cultures. She's interested in exploring the context of women's participation in literary labors in her work writing women's literary history and in a larger context in social, social authorship and the advent of print. Her most recent publication is volume five in the Oxford English Literary History series covering the period from 1645 to 1714. So please join me in welcoming Margaret. Thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate the invitation to be part of this group. Uh, it was reported to me that uh, one of the exercises performed in the working groups was to self-identify as being an imposter or a fraud, not deserving to be here. Um, so I, in the spirit of that, let me just say I am not a bibliographer. I doubt I would be considered a book historian. So I think I must fit right in. <laughs> I'm going to introduce all four of our presenters at once, and then we will proceed with their talks. We'll save the questions for the end. Our first speaker is Mimi Ensley, a fifth-year PhD candidate at the University of Notre Dame, specializing in Middle English literature and the history of the book. <coughs> Mimi's dissertation, Transmedia Traditions, Making Medieval Romance After Caxton, explores the way in which printers, readers, and scribes throughout the 16th century remade medieval verse romances across technological and temporal change. Our next speaker is Emily Freeman, an associate professor of English at Auburn University. Her first book, Reading Smell in 18th Century Fiction, was published last year. Her current project, Manuscript Fiction in the Age of Print, 1750 to 1900, is a database and a text set of never published fiction. She is currently working on the first monograph to emerge from this project. Our third speaker is Samia Ghosh, who is a graduate student working on early modern South Asia at the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies. Formerly a student of the Center for Studies in Social Sciences, Calcutta, his area of research is in Northeast India and Indo-Tibetan borderlands. His research interests include the problems of script and literacy, history and memory, practices of commemoration, material practices of learning, histories of the book, bibliographic practices, language, and orthography. Our final speaker is Alex Hidalgo, 
an assistant professor of Latin American history at Texas Christian University, my rival school. And his research interests include Mesoamerican ethnohistory, manuscript and print culture, history of collecting, sound, Iberian Atlantic, and the history of cartography. His work in progress includes, quote, a trail of footprints, a history of indigenous maps from Vice Rio, Mexico. And another, among other publications, he, with Jonathan Lopez, has edited a special edition of Ethnohistory, unquote, Ethnohistorical Maps in New Spain, 2014, and the Journal of Latin American Geography, Imperial Geographies and Spatial Memories in Spanish America in 2012. So we'll let me come and start us off. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, my talk is entitled Manuscript Romance and the Visual Language of Print. The year is 1564. The place is East Hampshire, in the southeast of England. Our protagonist, Edward Bannister, aged 24, has recently inherited a manor house from his grandmother. Over the course of his life, he will marry the sister of a poet, father two children, be fined for practicing his Catholic faith, and amass a substantial library of printed books and manuscripts, both medieval and early modern. His manuscript collection was especially large and included a text of Lydgate's Life of Our Lady, now held at the University of Chicago. It also held at least seven other medieval books, now found in the British Library, and we know he had a preprint copy of at least one of Sidney's sonnets. In 1564, however, he wanted to produce two manuscripts of his own. These manuscripts are now Oxford, Bodleian Library, MS Dowse 261, which is on the left, and London, British Library, MS Edgerton 3132, which is on the right. And I should say now that all of the Edgerton images um, are from a facsimile, because I don't have um, actual photos. I wasn't allowed to take them. Um, <laughs> so we'll make do. Dowse 261 contains copies of four 14th century romances, which Bannister titles The History of, Valiant, of the Valiant Knight Sir Isambros, The Treatise of Sir Degare, The Jest of Sir Gawain, and Sir Eglamour of Artois. Edgerton 3132 consists entirely of just one romance, The Life of Robert the Devil. But considering the multi-text nature of Daus, along with the inherent flexibility of the manuscript form, Bannister may have intended to add more texts at a later date. The two books are similar in size and appearance. They're small paper volumes with about 32 lines of text per page, uh, copied in a neat italic script. Strikingly, each manuscript is adorned with large hand-drawn illustrations, 35 in total. Most importantly for my purposes today, Bannister copied his texts, and in a more complicated way, his images, from printed editions. Editions which mostly came from the press of William Copeland, who was the foremost printer of the medieval romance after the Reformation. The people in this room are likely aware that though the concept is now foreign, manuscript copies of printed books were not unusual in the early days of print. Julia Boffey suggests that post-Scutenberg readers might hand copy a printed book uh, because they wanted to create a special, one-of-a-kind object, or simply because they couldn't purchase a printed copy, 
either since they didn't have the money or they didn't have access to the London-centric book trade. Norman Blake also notes the regional dialects of many manuscripts supposed to be copied from printed books. And this may suggest the scribe's desire to regionalize or domesticate the book away from a less familiar London idiom. In other words, as Blake makes clear, the decision to produce a manuscript copy does not always indicate that the scribe preferred to read in manuscript. Rather, the copyist's sole motivation was, more often than not, practical. But despite the relative frequency of the print-to-manuscript mode of transmission, Bannister's book is remarkable in the level of care he puts into the manuscripts. It seems to me that it's not purely a utilitarian volume. It's remarkable in the manuscript subject matter. It's extremely rare, even in the medieval period, to see manuscript collections of entirely Middle English romance. And it's remarkable in the ways in which Bannister uses his print exemplars, especially in producing his illustrations. Further, it's remarkable due to Bannister's status as a represent Catholic at a time when many Protestant commentators linked the romance genre with a superstitious and fanciful Catholic past. More broadly, Bannister's manuscripts are remarkable in the ways they link past and present within a single pair of objects. Bannister devoutly practices a religion associated with the medieval past, and he copies medieval stories through a medieval media technology. However, his use of these old romances and his deployment of the manuscript medium are filtered through the invention of the printing press. In what follows, I want to explore how Bannister's scribal and decorative practices merge characteristics of both manuscript and print technologies. I'll begin with Bannister's illustrations and then turn briefly to Bannister's text, all the while hoping to complicate the ways in which we can think about the differences between manuscript and print media. Bannister's illustrations revealed just how deeply the aesthetics of the printed book permeated his imagination. It's long been recognized that Bannister's illustrations resemble the style of printed woodcuts, but the extent of their indebtedness to that form um, has yet to be fully explored. My research suggests that not only are Bannister's illustrations indebted to a wood, woodcut-like style, but they also have analogs in specific woodcut images and in techniques of woodcut reproduction. Specifically, Bannister seems to have recognized that woodcut images, as we know, were repeatable. That is, they were not usually tied to one particular text. And they could be combined with other images to change the narrative scene. Martha Driver's example of this everyman woodcut, the stylish-looking guy over there, um, repeated across a striking variety of early printed books, illustrates both of these points. In this image, the everyman contemplates mortality. But here he plays Troilus in the 1517 edition of Chaucer's poem. And here he represents the allegorical figure desire. <laughs> Both the repetition and recombination of woodcut images in which a generic figure imported into a narrative and supplemented with text could be imaginatively transformed into a specific character evolved out of the economic and material realities of print technology. From a production standpoint, these composite images and repeated woodcuts allowed printers to produce high volumes of books both cheaply and quickly. From the reader's perspective, the repetition and movability of reproduced images formed what Driver calls a pictographic visual language familiar to 16th century audiences. I would argue that Bannister was fluent in this iconographic uh, tongue, and he used this fluency in the visual language of print to produce his own manuscript images. So far, my research suggests that at least 14 of Bannister's 35 narrative images have exemplars or at least analogs in printed illustrations. Perhaps I shouldn't be surprised by this discovery, 
since, as I said earlier, we know that Bannister's texts were copied from print editions. However, the, edition Bannister, the editions Bannister uses for his romance texts are not as heavily illustrated as his manuscripts. The printed verse romances typically only contain a woodcut on their title page, and those with more extensive images are still not as fully illustrated as they are in Bannister's manuscripts. Thus, the woodcut analogs for Bannister's illustrations are found in other print editions, primarily in longer and thus more heavily illustrated prose romances, um, which were far more common in the early modern print in early modern print than in medieval English manuscripts. So, an example from Bannister's manuscript copy of Robert the Devil, again here in facsimile, um, will help show what I mean. In Robert the Devil, the protagonist confesses a series of horrific sins to a hermit. The hermit is initially unsure about how to respond, but one night he's visited by an angel who outlines the proper penance Robert should undertake. Bannister illustrates this scene with the image of the hermit in bed visited by the angel, as you can see here. Uh, it seems clear to me that Bannister adapts this image from one relatively common in the printed books he might have encountered. This image of the angel and man in bed is an image repeated in three illustrated prose romances, uh, Valentine and Orson, The Knight of the Swan, and Arthur of Little Britain. There are slight differences, of course. The image is flipped in Bannister's The Hermit Sits Up in Bed, and Bannister's image is missing the diagonal line that separates the angel from the earthly dreamer. Bannister also particularizes his image by adding text. You can see in the angel's banderole, take heed to Robert's penance. Overall, however, the two are strikingly similar. And if we consider that most of Bannister's textual exemplars come from William Copeland's press, the fact that all three books containing this potential visual exemplar are also Copeland editions is suggestive. Uh, to put it differently, I don't find it much of a stretch to imagine that Bannister had access to one or several of the romances in which the printed angel image is featured. To continue with the Robert the Devil illustrations, we can take a look at Robert's armor. Whenever Robert appears in armor, he wears the same distinctive ensemble, a winged helmet with his elbows and knees decorated by a bearded face. There's no textual description of the protagonist's arms, so Bannister had some freedom in depicting his hero. He may, however, have found inspiration from a woodcut presented in a total of five printed romances, including, again, Copeland's Valentine and Orson and his Knight of the Swan, as well as his Mort d'Arthur. Um, yeah, and you can see that woodcut image there on your right. Uh, the composition in the two images is, of course, very different, but you can see the distinctive helmet and bearded face on both knights. For Bannister, this printed knight has become something like Driver's Everyman that we looked at earlier, not tethered to a specific text, but extractable and adaptable across diverse books. To continue along these lines would reveal the great extent to which Bannister borrows from the world of print illustration. And it's clear to me that Bannister's visual imagination for romance texts was heavily influenced by the world of print, and more specifically by the press of William Copeland. I'd like to turn briefly, though, to Bannister's textual copying strategy in order to show that while print is clearly an important component in the creation of our scribes' books, manuscript culture is just as present. My collation of Bannister's romances with the extant printed editions of the same romances shows that our scribes' texts are very closely related to contemporaneous printed books, again from Copeland's Press. However, what I'd like to focus on now are the many cases in which Bannister provides better readings for rhyme and meter than any of the extant London-based print editions. A passage from Sir Eglamour, the final text Bannister copies in Dow's 261, will help illustrate my point. 
So if we compare the 1555 William Copeland print edition of Eglamour to its closest medieval manuscript source, that in the London Thornton manuscript, we see that Copeland's text is missing a line required for the AABCCB tail rhyme scheme of the poem. So you can see that the London Thornton manuscript has for the comfort of that night, and Copeland is clearly missing something needed for that rhyme. It's clear that Copeland is short one line, and we might wonder if one of the print editors in the transmission of the poem didn't fully comprehend the tail rhyme scheme, which by 1555 was, I think, a bit old-fashioned. Bannister, however, may have understood the romance's meter more fully, since the Dallas 261 uh, manuscript, whose text derives from an edition similar to Copeland's, does supply the missing B line. Um, he puts in with Hawkes Fair of Flight, which is different from the London Thornton um, reading, but works both syntactically and metrically. So in fact, the Dallas Eglamour text supplies the missing lines in six additional instances, where metrically necessary lines have been omitted from the extant print editions. Of course, we can't definitively attribute these corrections to Bannister. They may have come from a now lost exemplar. Um, but if Bannister is the source of these missing lines, a possibility that I find very likely and I'm happy to talk about further in Q&A, um, but it's ultimately unprovable, then our scribe understood the metrical requirements of the tail rhyme form, a meter extraordinarily common amongst medieval romances. And he could recognize deficiencies in order to apply the appropriate line where necessary. In other words, Bannister could apply the techniques of a medieval scribe. Scribes of medieval romance often substituted or imported formulaic lines, lines like Hawkes Fair of Flight, while copying romance texts. Like these scribes drawing on the oral formulaic aesthetics of the romance form, Bannister seems to have recognized the need for a formulaic E line and supplied that line from a stock of formulae already embedded on his, in his memory. Perhaps he preferred the manuscript medium because it more easily allowed for such moments of correction. However, while Bannister's scribal insertions resonate with the idea of preprint mouvance, his copying techniques ultimately depart from both, of, from both those of medieval romance scribes and those of the early editors of romance print editions. Bannister, unlike the early modern printers of romance, understood the formal requirements of the tailoring scheme, and he strove to preserve a metrically correct text that he seemingly could not find in the print tradition. He found the romance genre worthy of such attention, and his attention to the formulae and repetition common to the genre's oral poetics allowed him to achieve a more complete copy of the text than any printer could. However, unlike the highly variant medieval romance redactions, Bannister's manuscript seems to, more often than not, preserve the specific words and word order present in the relatively stabilized print tradition. The same is true of his illustrations. While the manuscript medium afforded Bannister the opportunity to incorporate more images than any of his print exemplars, he also relied quite heavily on the woodcut aesthetic, something not common in medieval romance manuscripts which were unlikely to be illustrated at all. The visual language of print inserts itself into Bannister's manuscript even as he exploits the advantages of the scribal medium. So more could be said about the romance text Bannister chooses and about the relationship between his Catholic identity and his affinity for the medieval romance genre, a text type commonly framed by Protestant polemicists as old and even barbaric. However, I'd like to conclude by thinking about the idea of the miscellany. Bannister crafts a miscellany, a collection of individual texts bound into a single unit. And that miscellany is created in a production environment inevitably influenced by the printed book. But just as one text found within a miscellany 
influences a reader's perception of the other texts contained therein. Manuscript production techniques continue to color Bannister's print-infused aesthetic. And just as the miscellany complicates our understanding of sequential reading by allowing its readers to peruse the volume in whatever order they see fit, Bannister's scribal practices encourage us to complicate notions of temporal progress and diachronic change. In reading an early modern manuscript based on a printed text and full of Middle English verse romances decorated with woodcut-like illustrations, we must confront the, complexity of the complexities of change and continuity across artificially defined time periods. Put differently, Bannister's manuscripts are polytemporal objects, preserving layers of history that we as scholars of bibliography can excavate. But those layers are also inextricably linked, making Bannister's production neither fully medieval nor fully Elizabethan, fully manuscript nor fully print, but a complex intermingling of time and technology. Thank you.
That is also, of course, um, very tricky to ascertain. We err on the side of collecting and then checking, as uh, some of my examples uh, will show. My project is thus further bounded by time, uh, currently 1750 to 1900. Um, part of that is that because of the parameters of the database itself and copyright issues, um, manuscript production after 1900 enters a kind of wild west territory, depending on country and holding institution. And work prior to the mid-18th century has been generally addressed uh, as the trailing end of manuscript publication practices uh, of the story that Mimi was kind of talking about the earlier moment of. And by 1900, much draft material survives in TypeScript. Um, and a change of technology, and as I mentioned, copyright parameters that seem to signal that there is some big change um, at the end of that corpus. So I also do collect and examine, uh, although we are not transcribing, some related material to contextualize this kind of production. Um, so this is kind of the shadow uh, collection, uh, itself a database of outlier manuscript material, including manuscripts of public fiction in order to better understand the difference between material prepared for the press that failed to achieve print versus material prepared for private circulation. Um, of course, one of the tricky things in, for 18th century material is that so much of that is destroyed as a process of print production, as Gaskell tells us. Um, next, uh, typescripts of unpublished fiction. I do actually look at them uh, to see that moment of transition uh, at work. Um, and then manuscript material that is non-fictional um, in order to note the differences and similarities in writing process and materials over time and between genres. So some, uh, some important authors have an enormous amount of their paper production of in multiple genres available. Seeing what their patterns are over time is, is quite useful. Much of what I'm gonna talk about uh, for the remaining time I have is how we describe this material. Um, and so, and the challenges are multiple because unlike early modern, um, material in that moment of transition <coughs> as, the, as print and, and scribal practices really do kind of live side by side and one hasn't eaten the other, um, we're looking at material that uh, takes a wide variety of forms. Uh, what you're seeing right now is the very first item I ever came across about nine years ago at Schottenhouse Library. Um, uh, this is a sentimental novel uh, with a faux Dublin imprint, uh, imprint of 1799, which itself is a sentimental novel written into a pre-bound blank book by one young woman for her female best friend. Um, as far as we know, they were ultimately buried side by side. Or uh, New York Public Library's Ruben Rattle, a fully illustrated in 18 parts, uh, serially produced, it, it looks like this all the way through. Um, circulated uh, according to its young author in the final, uh, uh, the final, final kind of month, he tells us that he has produced this to circulate among his family and friends. We also have some not so pretty items, including the life of Matthias Medler or the Quixote or Quixote, depending on who you are, of reform, a draft manuscript of sewn together packets whose audience is much less clear, but is written by. Um, Charles Dibden of the famous theatrical family. So whether he is trying like his father to enter the world of print, and this is a failed attempt, um, or whether this is doing something else, um, we're still trying to ascertain. My favorite example, and those of you who have heard me speak before will know about this one, uh, is the novels, novellas of Jesse Rivington, 
uh, whose connection to the printing family I am reasonably certain of, but have not yet been able to trace her, him, uh, directly, even though the Rivington family has its own kind of genealogy. She is named, he is named, they are named. Um, uh, and there are two Gothic novellas. These appear on the reverse of a bookbinder's ledger um, that was purchased uh, by the American Antiquarian Society because it is sale records of bookbinding practices. So flip it over one direction and you have how much it costs to bind a book in New York. Flip it over in the reverse and you get some really terrible fiction. Um, <laughs> I didn't say they were all winners. Um, so I ask some global questions as we attach, uh, a kind of address each manuscript. And I keep saying they because I work with a team of undergraduate and graduate researchers at Auburn University. And of course, I'm dependent on the kindness of archivists. Uh, first, of course, where is the text? Uh, most of these texts are discovered through library catalogs and finding aids. Although thanks to Gail, um, there are some that are in terrible digitized form with questionable uh, locations. Still. Who wrote it? Uh, this is a big question. Uh, who received it? Um, sometimes there are named recipients, uh, sometimes not. Who owned it? Uh, provenance with these items because they're generally not seen as particularly interesting. They've just kind of gotten shoved into the archive. We don't have a long uh, paper trail. In the case of items that are held by Chotten House Library, the person who donated them kept the receipts with her private archivist and they are not publicly available. Uh, so fun. Um, with what was it made? Uh, this is a key question. Uh, and paper is an important uh, documentary piece of evidence, as you might imagine. Um, the materiality of the text is contributing significantly to our understanding of and ability to answer any of the other questions. Um, and finally, what is the text? Um, and I don't know that I'm getting to the answer to that today, but that's the ultimate goal. So with the preliminary answers to these questions, we can begin to organize this information in ways that allow for text to be grouped, sorted, and compared in ways they have never been before. Um, this is work that is vital in order to understand what is authorial innovation versus change across a larger community of practice. This is also essential work in order to perform in order to find more examples of the work, as we can only discover that which we have names and terminology for. So I'll now turn to the challenges that we face when trying to answer some seemingly simple questions. Um, so my project, Manuscript Fiction in the Age of Print, uh, aims to provide rich metadata about manuscript fiction to make these items more discoverable in their current homes by scholars and other interested readers. I was just at the Jane Austen Society of North America. They wear bonnets. They're very interested in this material. Um, the two things are not irreconcilable. Ultimately, we aim to provide uh, TEI-compliant XML encoding alongside page images, um, grant funders, please take note, uh, to allow for both human and machine reading of these items. Uh, TEI allows for an enormous amount of information to be included in the XML field of each object. Um, but in the meantime, I maintain a very kind of rudimentary spreadsheet uh, with all of the fields of the schemes and there are multiple ones, in order to have a centralized resource from which I can personally work. And so currently I organize the fields in the project into three categories. Um, and you can see these are the three phases that we're talking about um, here. Um, so first we have managerial fields. These are the fields that allow for workflow management, who is currently transcribing, who is describing, uh, whether we have the material, um, and in many cases how much it would cost to get digital surrogates or to travel to the item. 
Um, uh, we also have aggregator compliant. These are the fields that are required or permitted um, by the uh, RDF or Resource Description Framework metadata scheme used by 18th Connect and Nines. Um, and I'll address the challenges of some of these fields later, which are primarily the challenges of discovering the information. Um, and these are some of the just of, uh, some of the controlled uh, fields that are allowed by Nines and 18th Connect. Um, and finally, we have project-specific fields. Um, these are a combination of fields concerned with physical description um, as well as interpretation. Um, and I won't discuss the physical fields much today. Uh, we're still kind of in this, this phase of gathering, um, but we do measure uh, to the extent that we can understand if, if it is a bound book, kind of uh, putting together some initial understanding of the gatherings and constructions um, is part of that. And so you can see a few examples of some of the salient project fields, um, illustrations, question mark, type of illustrations. Um, general notes, as you might imagine, is the largest field <laughs> from which all other fields um, kind of come. So I want to kind of do a little bit of a strategic uh, dive into some of these fields um, and the challenges of the most irritating of these fields. Um, and so I want to start uh, with what seems like a totally rational uh, question to ask, which is date. Um, but as all of you who work with manuscripts in the room know, um, that while some pieces of manuscript fiction have clearly ascertained dates of composition and their authors have kindly provided um, some sort of evidence or better yet written down a date that can be authenticated, um, most do not. Um, watermarks allow for a certain amount of range, binding and pen techniques as well, biographical information if they appear in, in a larger corpus, these are all great. Others and many others have very little to proceed with. Um, this is true of enough manuscripts that establishing precise timelines with individual data points is currently impossible. Um, generally, we can place a novel in a given century, um, but even that is subject to correction. Same too with titles. Uh, we get title pages that are beautiful like this, and then we get this item. Uh, this is, you will see I've given this the title of the history of Nancy Pelham. It does not have this title in its current form. It has no title page, no title line, no prefatory material. Um, it does not appear on the spine. Um, it is currently described as Hampshire, England woman's novel by Duke University. But I know that it is not just a manuscript, but in fact, a manuscript copy from no earlier than the 1820s um, of a novel in parts, a retelling of Samuel Richardson's Pamela, where everyone is nice, um, <laughs> from between 1777 and 1779, and appeared in the London Magazine and the Hibernian. Nevertheless, uh, I'm still working with Duke on updating their catalog information, which refers to it as an unpublished epistolary novel bearing some resemblance to the works of Jane Austen. Um, possibly a female author, and we were calling it for a very long time, simply Hampshire. Um, there's a very long and interesting story about the final private owner who was convinced very much that it was written by Jane Austen's mother. <laughs> Ever published as a kind of segue, of course, there, therein is a kind of moving target. Um, enormously difficult, although easier than ever before um, with increased digitization. Um, that uh, is true even when the front matter contains claims that the work was not intended for publication, as in the case of the history of Theodora Constantia Harcourt from some time around 1750. 
Um, while such claims have been well understood in the world of print as a stock authorial pose, I confess there's a temptation to take such claims at face value when they appear in manuscript. Um, particularly in the case of this manuscript, the Navy officer or true blue will never stain, uh, which is addressed to a single known recipient uh, who herself was in the process of a very um, public and ugly disinheritance. And this is basically a Romana Clay plus additional legal decisions uh, and parliamentary proceedings copied into the manuscript um, for her education and her ability to cope with the fact that she was about to lose everything. Um, so the, the argument on the first several pages that this is designed for her eyes only seems a little bit more compelling. Um, this is doubly true for works that may be translations. Figuring out whether something is an English translation of something that did appear, um, particularly in French, is, is a very tricky subject. Um, for example, this young woman, uh, teenager really, Charlotte Pat, uh, inscribed the history of Ernestine in part into this small full-calf blank book now held by Chotten. In 2014, a researcher who I have yet to track down claimed that the work is a translation of Riccoboni's Histoire of Ernestine from 1765. Um, but the text is different from the English translation of the work published in 1766. It is not entirely clear to me how the researcher made that connection. What do we call Charlotte Pat then? Is she the author of this work, the copyist, the translator? Um, scribe seems to be the simplest uh, kind of categorization. And yet, uh, as we were talking about uh, yesterday afternoon, there's still this desire to have an author field. Um, I refuse to have just that. Uh, we have a scribe, a copyist, author, and translator fields, uh, which of course means more fields to sift through, and as any librarians in the room know, that leads to madness. Um, there are currently over 50 fields um, that we move through for each uh, manuscript on top of transcribing and encoding. Even the very streamlined schema imposed by um, RDF allows for these kinds of role distinctions. Um, and as I've noted, this doesn't entirely make authorial identity perfectly clear. You may remember I mentioned a very interesting prior owner of the, of the history of Nancy Pelham. The last private owner of the manuscript copy spent a considerable amount of time and ingenuity arguing for a connection, if not directly to Austin and her family, than to a composition by a Hampshire woman from about the same period. And as I mentioned, he's completely wrong. The work of fiction is indeed produced in the 1770s, but not in this copy whose paper is from a Welsh paper mill that wasn't in existence until 1821. Um, nevertheless, his six-page typescript accompanies the manuscript, proclaims that, and I quote here, internal evidence, construction, plot, characters, handwriting, paper, orthography, grammar, locale, etc., shows the novel to have been written circa 1780 by a Hampshire authoress living in or conversant with the area north of Winchester, in short, uh, if not Cassandra Austin the Elder, someone much like her. Um, and he documents this. This is uh, his attempt uh, to create evidence, and I use the term very loosely, because then when you add correction, for example, checking the frequency of those names in general, just say across 18th century collections online or Echo, you realize the vast majority of them are in fact not unique to Hampshire, not unique to the Austin family, but in fact, dead common. Uh, but the seeming rigor of this typescript is a reminder that whatever the catalog or other records might say must be verified. 
On the one hand, most manuscripts in this corpus are uh, trying to fake or misdocument for fraudulent purposes. They're just not that valuable. On the other hand, they also haven't been given um, so, uh, the kind of intense scholarly analysis up to this point, as their early modern and earlier um, kind of corollaries have been given. Um, while they do record what a given catalog or finding aid documents about a manuscript, my hope is that the later work enabled by increased discoverability will lead to corrections over time. So I've discussed the hidden pitfalls of titles, assessing whether a text was ever published or might be a translation, various roles we might assign to known names. Um, and I want to kind of briefly gloss over um, recipients, um, the kind of role that has even less the firm data behind it. Um, there's almost no information to merit reporting in many cases, except for example, uh, the Frederick Harley, where their wills both survive, the author leaves her entire estate to the woman who she wrote this novel for. They wrote it in her, their early 20s. Um, they die in their 60s. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and as far as we know, are buried side by side in Southampton. This is extremely rare. Um, we, as I've also mentioned, the Navy officer um, ties us to a thin Romana clay, um, and thus we have some information. And I trot these examples out again and again because they're some of the only ones that we can do this kind of detective work on at this point in time. But I want to finally, in the last minute or so that I have, uh, mention the kind of overarching, um, as exciting as the individual kind of micro-histories are, what I really want to do in the longer term with this project, the hardest part of this, um, which is to correct this. That is, as many of you might know, one of the titular graphs from Franco Moretti's Graphs, Maps, and Trees, Abstract Models for Literary History. I can't believe that's over a decade old. Um, using information from Raven, Levy, Sherling, um, Moretti aimed to display no knowledge about the art uh, novel in new ways. I would like to argue that to a certain extent, his data is sometimes a good example of what's often called Kiko or Gigo, which is to say garbage in, garbage out. Um, one of my graduate students, Amy Skinner Childress, has recently attempted to replicate Moretti's calculations of the Gothic by adding in the best available booklet lists now extant and has found at least one spike in production not accounted for in grasslands and trees. Unfortunately, generic categories are enormously fraught concepts, and the nature of never published work seems to thwart easy categorization, if we can ever talk about easy categorization of the genre. Uh, this, for example, is a very preliminary visualization that please don't, it's not good of works in the 18th century subset, which itself is a very tiny subset of, of the text set, each identified only by one genre. And I cannot stress how profoundly dissatisfied I am with this chart. Um, so all of the challenges of data input I have outlined build upon one another to make generic labeling still more difficult. Um, lack of dates make placement in the history of fiction impossible. Lack of titles mean we lack the mooring that naming conventions give us. Um, and yet, with all of these challenges, um, I do soldier on. And in the q and I'd be more than happy to talk more about control of vocabulary. Thank you. Northeast of India, and I pulled out this map just to give you a context 
both the ge uh, a geographical context of the region. And um, we will be speaking mostly about the lower region of Assam, where most of the activities, the scriptural activities, are happening at this point of time. And up there, towards the north, you basically have a very interesting situation. You have uh, a number of you know, uh, tribal polities um, that have not really taken to writerly practices. And um, it would be, it, it's very interesting because they would not take to writerly practices even uh, late into the 20th century. So, um, okay. So yeah, so this is just to give uh, and and just to give you a brief idea of where we are. And this, the lower region is ruled by um, in in the 18th century. It was ruled by the Ahom uh, rulers who traced their lineage back to the um, to, to to the Thai states, and uh, they later migrated to Shan state of Burma and then they crossed over to the region sometime in early 13th century. But what we will be talking of today is not the 18th century, which is what I work on, but um, I've kind of worked around the title a bit, Marking Scripts, Fixing Histories, Reading Manuscripts in Colonial Assam. So we will be basically talking about how um, these manuscripts were being uh, read uh, within a particular uh, colonial uh, context. Um, I'll come back uh, to the slideshow uh, later. Um, okay, it just shows up there. So, um, can I just unplug it yeah. while you read? Exactly. Great. So, yeah. So, I'll just come back to it um, later. The northeastern region of the Indian subcontinent was witness to an unprecedented historical excitement in late 19th and early 20th centuries. Closely tied to the anti colonial nationalist struggle, literary scholars and historians worked together in shaping the pasts of the region and its many languages. The Bengali Nobel laureate, Ravindranath Tagore, described this moment as marked by a hunger for history that pushed both institutions and intellectuals to write and claim multiple and contentious pasts. With the extremely successful introduction of print, first by American missionaries in the region, and then the English East India Company ruling from Bengal, intellectuals from the region began publishing widely by early 20th century. There were a number of literary miscellanies that were devoted to the task of constructing a narrative of the pre-colonial past of the, of the region. And here we are basically talking about a period between 1880s and 1930s. And this was extremely crucial for creating both regional awareness and a sense of distinct regional identity. In providing an account of how several historical investigations led by institutions, professional and amateur historians aimed towards providing a continuous and linear account of the origin and development of scripts in colonial Assam, I wish to ask two questions. 
how was a contentious past claimed and constructed through modern disciplinary practices in early 20th century Assam? And why does the script question become important in writing the history of the nation in 20th century Assam? The history of script literacy and a culture of writing in Assam goes back to late 13th century. Some of the earliest chronicles of the Ahom polity written in the Ahom language and in the Thai Ahom script, which is very close to the Thai script, uh, are from this period. However, in early 17th century, around 1642, with the strengthening of the Ahom power and the establishment of the independent Ahom empire in the region, the court encouraged the script reform. From this period, we find manuscripts being written in a script that was entirely different from the erstwhile Thai Ahom script. The new script, unlike the old one, was angular, dominated by straight lines, and was and calligraphically simpler. There was an insistence on the calligraphy, and we find manuscripts that appear from this period to be careful about the aesthetic qualities of the script. However, the use of the new script was not uniform. In fact, a careful reading of the manuscripts from early modern Assam allowed room for complexities. The situation of the new script in history is complicated by the presence of multiple script forms that were in use in 17th and 18th century Assam. The idea of a singular script form seems to have been largely non-significant during this historical period. And as I try to argue elsewhere, 17th and 18th century scribes and copyists appear to have worked with notions of distinctions among the various script forms different from that of 20th century commentators, who were more interested in separating these script forms and creating bounded entities out of each. The notion of Old Assamese script with its distinct history emerged within this framework of reading the pre-colonial script forms in colonial Assam. Assam's most prominent historian, S.K. Bhuya, commenting on the script situation in late 17th and 18th century, clearly identifies these multiple script forms as different versions of a larger group, what he calls Old Assamese or Puran Ahomea. Bhuya classifies them basically on their functions and relations to particular social groups. Bhuya argues that the Old Assamese script during this period existed in four different forms, namely Koiteli, Bamunia, Godgaya, and Lakari. According to Bhuya, the distinction was very clear. Koiteli was used by Kayasthas, the writerly class, Bamunia by Brahmins, the priestly class, Godgaya by royal copyists, and Lakari by copyists of Lower Assam. This has remained a standard understanding of the pre-colonial script situation and has played a major role in the way in which the Ahom scriptorium was reorganized with respect to colonial knowledge production in 20th century. We find the same argument of a neat classification in later bibliographers and philologists' account who played a major role in cataloging the early modern manuscripts for institutions like the Directorate of Historical and Antiquarian Studies. We have a couple of incomplete handwritten manuscripts and two later print editions of the catalogues. Compiled by bibliographers like Hemchandra Goswami and Satyendranath Sharma, these catalogues show one of the earliest hard evidence of separating these manuscripts within the four categories mentioned earlier. Although British administrator historians like Edward Gate took a deep interest in the materiality of these manuscripts and the process of their production, Gate is completely silent about the script used in these manuscripts. However, 
there was a deep political interest that developed around the script problem within the sphere of a nationalist discourse in colonial Assam. The interlocutors of the Assamese historians and bibliographers were Indologists like T.P. Verma, Dimbeshwar Neog, and Yugo Swami. Based on their finds and archaeological evidence from 12th, 13th century Assam, they made, they made attempts to write a linear, continuous history of the evolution of the Assamese script, tracing its origins to a classical Sanskritic past. Although through their analysis they were able to create a category called the Old Assamese with its four distinct forms that they claimed were used for entirely different purposes and by different groups, they remained largely unsuccessful in answering some important historical questions. Why did four script forms emerge suddenly in the 17th century? Why were they being used by scholars and scribes often simultaneously within a single folio of a manuscript without ever providing any explanation behind this practice? And what was the logic of the various script forms in early modern Assam? The scribes and copyists who were using the script forms in 17th and 18th century Assam did not seem to have regarded them as separate in terms of employment for different genres. It appears that they followed a different logic in using these script forms. In several of the manuscripts, they used the three major script forms, Kaitali, Bamuni, and Gargaya, interchangeably in order to arrest the formation of one dominant script form that would take over the rest. This implies that acquiring skills in any one script form was not enough for a copyist or a scribe to have command over contemporary writerly practices. Such control and regulation of script might be a way of rendering literacy available only to a group of skilled individuals. A more complex problem arises when we come across manuscripts, particularly from the royal court, which show the use of both Kaiteli and Gargaya script forms identified as mixed script by S.K. Bhuya. This has not received much attention in 20th century classificatory system. In fact, bibliographers like Goswami completely overlooked the presence of writing where various script forms were used within the same folio. Some of the important productions of courtly literary activity dating back to 1726 show this tendency. Besides manuscripts, copper plates from this period show the use of a script that bears peculiarities of both Kaitali and Gargaya. The case of separated script forms appears more unconvincing when we take into account the question of users. The scribes and copyists associated with the Vaishnava monastic institutions and the Ahom court who use these script forms largely belong to two caste groups, Kaistas and Brahmins. In 18th century Assam, the monastic centers were full of Mahajans or religious instructors and bhakats who were the votary of a particular Hindu god, Vishnu, and the disciple of uh, these Mahajans belonged to the group identified as Kamrupi Kayasta in contemporary genealogical accounts. However, they appear to have practiced copying in both Kaiteli and Bamunia. The same argument holds true for Brahmins who use the Kaiteli script for copying expressive literature. Bhuya misses out on these moments from the history of script-related practice in Assam when his Kayasta and Brahmin copies don't behave as he would have believed them to. The logic of distinction of old Assamese script forms seemed to pose a larger <coughs> historical puzzle, hitherto overlooked by historians and literary scholars. While the presence of the various script forms is not open to debate, their neat classification needs reconsideration. 
Specific instances show that early modern scribes and copyists pay little heed to such separate and bounded existence. In fact, they often move from one form to another without stating any logic behind their choice. One could argue they might have not recognized these script forms as different from one another in ways that they were made out to be latter. Their choice of moving between these forms was not guided by the logic of an etic classification. This kind of classification used by later bibliographers was deeply influenced by contemporary politics as well as early anthropological practices in the region. Thus, the creases in the early modern archive of script-related practices and materials appear to have been steamrolled by the 20th century bibliographers and philologists in a rush to define and classify the contours of the Assamese writing system. So I have some time to... Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So yes. So if you uh, slash hit slash yeah. All right. So this is um, a script that uh, that is from the. Uh, this is a script that uh, this is a, this is a has been identified as Kaiteli uh, by Bhuya and other later bibliographers. What's interesting is this is this manuscript is of uh, this is an account written by a, a person serving as both a general and a writer in the army of the Ahoms, and this is from the Ahom Mughal conflict uh, of 1671. And what you have here is basically the plan of the war. Uh, which is uh, laid out in a diagrammatic fashion. But what's interesting is uh, the, the script, because as I was saying, this script is very different from uh, what you would have before. And what you had before was this one, which is the Thai-Ahom script, which is much more cursive, very close to Thai, Thai-Tham, Thai-Lam. And suddenly you have, in 17th century, development of uh, this script, which is Indic, angular, straight line. Um, quickly, um, moving on to this one, which is the Bamunia, uh, which has been identified as the Bamunia script. Uh, it's slightly different from the earlier, but then the difference lies not so much in the form, but in the way it was written. Uh, this is a later Bamunia uh, copy, uh, and which is, we see that it has somehow incorporated Kaiteli <coughs> characteristics within, uh, its, uh, within it. This is an illustrated manuscript from the core, and if we go to the, uh, if we look at the top, you will see that the script, uh, very closely, if you look at it, you'll see that it is showing the peculiarities of both Kaiteli and Bamunia. Um, that's kind of very interesting. And how the illustration is kind of wrapped around the text is also something which is yeah, very interesting uh, in, this, uh, in these uh, courtly manuscripts. Um, 
here's a stone ins uh, inscription from the temple, and uh, I don't think uh, it's very clear, but <laughs> you know, I can uh, tell you that um, the script is again what Bhuyan would call a mixed script. And most of the uh, documents that were coming from the royal courts, like the stone inscription or the copper plate, uh, or the illustrated manuscripts were marked by Puya and later bibliographers as a mixed script, which is a category that I'm trying to contend in my work. And finally, here we have a picture of, uh, of an anthology, which is kind of a manuscript book prepared from handmade paper in the region. And the script here is again very different. It's a, it's a particular form of writing in Brajwali, another language, which developed entirely from the monastic traditions. And it was uh, the religious preceptors who would write in this language. Uh, actually, someone who established the monastic order, Shankaradev, would write in this language and his disciples would follow. So... Yeah, so that's about my presentation, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first, let me start off by thanking uh, Marisa and Rachel, who's not here, uh, for organizing the panel, uh, Margaret for moderating, and for what I'm sure will be uh, insightful commentary and to my fellow presenters for their invigorating papers. I'd like to um, take you now from the old world to the new. Um, after eight excruciating hours in labor, Pascuala Chavez, a Zapotec noblewoman from the town of Santa Catarina Quijene in Oaxaca's Central Valley, that is in southern Mexico, delivered conjoined twins early in the morning of June 14, 1741. According to Miguel de Castro, a Dominican friar who later recorded details of the event, Chavez finished giving birth, having started at 8 in the evening of the previous day to a dead girl with two heads, perfect in every way. And in between them, a sort of small little arm with what looked like a little finger. The monstrous birth mobilized a group of specialists who took possession of the body. After the delivery, someone, perhaps an indigenous midwife or a healer, had the body transported to the city of Oaxaca for the Bishop of Antequera to inspect. After its arrival in the city, a surgeon named Pedro de Desperes performed an autopsy of the bicephalous remains and later embalmed the corpse. Despedes observed that the body had all internal organs complete and not duplicated and that the heart measured the size of one normally found on a two-year-old. The wondrous event compelled the bishop to transfer the body to Veracruz where the viceroy of New Spain was supervising the construction of new defensive infrastructure designed to protect the strategic port city from foreign attack. The viceroy, in turn, had the body salted and sent to Jesus of Nazareth Hospital, a prominent medical institution in Mexico City, 
where physicians placed it on display and where according to the account of the monstrous birth, many, many people who attended the exhibit saw it. Yet the most curious aspect of this case does not concern the monstrous birth or the physical display of the body, but rather it involves the Dominican priest's choice of how to archive the record of the wondrous event. After preparing his report, the cleric selected a copy of the Rerum Medicarum Nova España Thesaurus, a 17th century edition of Francisco Hernández's 16th century compendium of Mexican plants and animals, sewing the page of written text securely into the entrails of the old book and filing it next to a description of a two-headed cat. The Dominican observed that because it is such a rare case, I place the record in this book by Francisco Hernández next to the description of a similar monster, albeit a calf, with a stamp pasted here of said girl delivered in this city. In the priest's estimation, filing this otherwise unclassifiable moment among a series of similar themes and into a sturdy book would help ensure the survival of the account while also giving it meaning. In this paper, I analyze the relationship between print and manuscript culture as it relates to the recording and archiving of events that transcended the limits of the natural world. What can books tell us about the way individuals stored and remembered traumatic, curious, and wondrous occurrences? While notaries generated thousands of manuscripts each year capturing the activities that people wanted recorded for posterity, who took note of all those other gripping episodes of daily life that escaped official review? What made a moment unusual and worthy of recording it by hand, and what compelled people to insert documents, or written comments for that matter, inside of mechanically reproduced books. I proposed that the handwritten account stitched into the Rerum Medicarum form part of a larger process of memorializing rare and wondrous events that included the circulation of broadsides, the publication of gazette announcements, and marginalia within the pages of printed books. Rather than constituting an isolated incident, the insertion of the manuscript record represents a distinct form of archival practice in which books served as receptacles meant to store wondrous events. The history of monstrous births in New Spain sits at an intersection between medical practice and wondrous event. Physical exceptionalism generated a range of different responses across colonial society. In the Hispanic world, a monster by definition resulted from the birth that went against the regular order of nature. Monsters denoted imperfection and monstrosity included elements of disproportionate size and ugliness. <laughs> European interpretations of deformities were closely tied to portents, prophecy, and sinful behavior. Lorraine Dastin and Catherine Park 
argue that three interrelated forms of assimilating monstrosity coexisted in Europe during the early modern period. Horror formed part of what they termed the prodigy canon, an understanding of ominous and providential occurrences typically associated with divine punishment. Pleasure, on the other hand, reflected an understanding of monsters tied to wonder and a fascination with the limits of the natural world. Bless you. And repugnance foregrounded scientific and medical observations that rationalized physical abnormality. Indigenous culture in the Americas also recognized, valued, and feared monstrosity. Material remains from Mesoamerica, especially fetal images, effigies uh, among the Olmets, tie physical abnormality to symbolic ritual power. Among the Aztecs of central Mexico, indigenous accounts prepared around the time of Hernán Cortés's arrival in Tenochtitlán connected the birth of a crane with a mirror on its head and the roaming of two-headed monsters on the streets of the city with the ominous news of the empire's downfall. In another respect, monstrous birth formed part of a larger history of reproduction and women's health that included the creation of new medical instruments, the institutionalization of post-mortem cesarean operations, and the rise of obstetrics. During the late 17th and 18th centuries, New Spain experienced a gradual shift towards the professionalization of medical culture. In this transition, male physicians claimed authority over the knowledge used to heal, casting aspersions on the legitimacy of midwives, healers, and ritual specialists traditionally associated with medical practice in the New World. Martha Few asserts that indigenous, African, and mixed race, um, oh, I'm sorry, I lost my space real quick. Ah, here we go. Mixed race caregivers were thought to have the dual ability to cause and cure illness, bridging the boundaries between the natural and supernatural worlds. When Doña Maria Cecilia de Paniagua, a 29-year-old Spanish woman from Guatemala, delivered in 1792 a monstro muerto, a dead monster that resembled a half-toed, half-human baby, she blamed two mixed-race women for casting spells on her unborn child. Paniagua disclosed to inquisitorial authorities that after a spat with one of them, the two mestizas, an ethnic mixture that denoted indigenous and Spanish ancestry, gave her a beef stew as a peace offering, from which she ate at least a spoonful. She reported listening to the croaking of a toad throughout her home from that point forward until the moment of the stillbirth, four months later, when the croaking stopped. In the New World, responses to monstrous birth took on distinct meaning based on local political and social conditions. Religious conversion campaigns, gender and ethnic hierarchies that defied viceregal authority, and the circulation of indigenous medical knowledge and ritual used to heal informed ideas about wonder and monstrosity. 
often monstrous birth generated feelings of dread associated with negative omens and symbols of divine punishment. Authorities, for instance, prohibited baptism of any fetus extracted after the death of a mother who showed facial malformation. When a monster is born who does not have a human face, the instructions noted, medical practitioners should not baptize it. Those unsure of the true nature of a child and in the absence of a priest were instructed to baptize with the benediction, if you are human, I baptize you. The church, as Martha View has forcefully argued, established itself as an arbiter of monstrosity and an authority of wondrous things. In the case of the half-toed, half-human baby, the priest declared it a product of witchcraft and refused to baptize it. Yet in the case of conjoined twins, social reaction leaned towards the wondrous. The language used to describe the body of the two-headed monster from Oaxaca included elements of perfection and completion, so much so that religious authorities deemed the body worthy of display in a prominent hospital. Along with grains, livestock, steel weapons, fruits, vegetables, and disease, Spaniards regularly transported books to the Americas. Scholars of the 20th century attributed the exportation of books from Europe to a civilizing mission tied to colonial expansion. While the Spanish crown heavily regulated the circulation and printing of books, early 16th century explorers, clerics, royal officials, and merchants exchanged and read a variety of histories romances, poetry, and religious treatises. You see on the screen here one uh, particular work that was deemed especially uh, subversive by uh, Spanish authorities. It was the tale of an errant knight that many of the travelers to the New World read, which according to authorities should be banned in all cases and especially kept outside of the hands of Indians. Presses in Mexico City and Lima, established in 1539 and 1584 respectively, produced over a hundred titles during the course of the century, including missals, confession manuals, catechisms, sermons, graduals, and hagiographies. Missionaries also prepared an extensive and impressive range of native language vocabularies that, while centered on religious conversion, generated a wealth of ethnographic material used to make sense of diversity and the peoples of the new world. In addition to official legislation that regulated printing and reading, historians of the book in the Americas have mined a richer array of sources, including ships' registers, bills of sale, post-mortem estate inventories, inquisitorial and other institutional records, and book merchants' properties to trace the lives of books. Unlike Northern European patterns, the printing press in America did not act as an agent, uh, an agent of change. Instead, as Magdalena Chocano Mena points out, the press served to consolidate the power of the state and it allowed American-born Spaniards, like Sor Juana pictured here, known as Creoles, to gain social ascendancy. 
Despite the limitations of the print industry, studies in natural history, medicine, ethnography, and navigation found the light of day in manuscript form. In the Hispanic world, manuscript books formed an important part of the intellectual makeup of the empire, tied as much to medieval traditions of bookmaking and illumination as to Spain's proclivity towards secrecy. Historians of science of the Iberian world have demonstrated that the production of books and maps in manuscript form allowed royal authorities to control the flow in knowledge and to limit the circulation of sensitive information. The Rerum Medicarum, the book into which Castro inserted his account of the monstrous birth, belonged in part to this tradition. The book was one of several different editions that published the finding of 16th century physician and naturalist Francisco Hernández. On commission from the crown, Hernández had prepared 16 volumes that documented the plants, minerals, and animals of the Viceroyalty of New Spain over the course of seven years, from 1570 to 1577. The manuscript included hundreds of illustrations made by indigenous artists who for generations had participated in the, participa in, in the preparation of painted books on a range of subjects that included tribute records, astrological studies, histories, and genealogies. Painted books continued to circulate after contact well into the 16th century. Sadly for Hernández, the Spanish physician never got to see his book in print. By the time of the, steel, of the still birth of the conjoint twins in 1741, the copy of the Rerum Medicarum currently in the Francisco Burgoa Library in Oaxaca had circulated for nearly a century. That the Dominican friar who penned the account deliberately selected the book to function as an archive says volumes of Hernández's enduring legacy in natural history, not to mention the reading habits of certain missionaries in the New World. That he chose to include the document in the vows of the book should come as less of a surprise. For generations, users had transformed books by annotating, branding, and defacing them in various ways. William Sherman argues that in, in early modern England, marginalia and illustrations of various kinds form part of a dynamic ecology of use and reuse, leading to transformation and deconstruction as well as to preservation. In addition to curly brackets, pointing hands, portraits and profile, and foliage, one could also come across the occasional book curse warning users to return books to their rightful owners. Similar engagement with books existed in the Hispanic world. Books in the Americas functioned as archives in three important ways. Through marginalia, where readers engage deeply with a book's text by adding pithy commentary, correcting, editing, and illustrating by intentionally inserting a related document into a book, such as the case of the monstrous birth, 
And through the process of recycling, where bookmakers reuse paper, especially to cover the inner boards of books, known as the paste down. For the purposes of my talk today, I will focus on the former two. Marginalia notes Sherman challenges the idea that reading served as a passive activity of reception while highlighting the fact that the addition of handwritten texts continued centuries, not decades, after the invention of printing. But marginalia could also be divorced from the text and the book itself. An anonymous 18th century reader in New Spain, for instance, used the margin of the pages of the Yaseñor's Teatro Americano, a political geography of New Spain published in 1746 in Mexico City, to comment about various natural disasters. Since I'm running out of time, I will spare you the details of the uh, natural disasters, and we'll head into my very last portion here. Um, the sort of information that circulated in various forms throughout the colonial period is tied to what Hortensia Calvo has connected to colonial presses. That is, that they sporadically produced broadsized, featuring information about natural disasters, the schedule of arrival and departure of the fleets, and strange occurrences since 1541, when the first such publication appeared in Mexico. Not surprisingly, the Dominican account of the uh, conjoined twins included a cutout of an hoja volante, or news flyer, that depicted the two-headed monster. While the document of the birth prepared by the priest itself was uncommon, news of unusual births was not. Nora Jafari's Nora Jafari study of monstrous births in New Spain traces the announcement of at least 50 notifications of unusual deliveries published between 1784 and 1803 in the Gaceta de Mexico, an Enlightenment-era periodical that published news on a range of subjects including scientific studies, medical treatises, and historical and archaeological findings. Jafari notes that in addition to the announcement of multiple births, including 20 cases of triplets and six of quadruplets, the periodical registered the birth of progeny classified as monstrous. Children with missing limbs, others with two heads or four buttocks, and at least one case of a child born with her heart on the exterior of her body. Whether it was wonder of nature's complexity, she observes, or the lurid titillation of freakishness, an element of pleasure in the spectacle of monstrosity, and its revenue-generating potential certainly existed in colonial Mexico. Thank you very much. Um, let's uh, invite all the speakers up to sit in the front, and I'm going to ask you to stand as you respond to questions. So while they're assembling, I'm going to give a few extremely sweeping generalizations because I think this panel is a splendid demonstration of all four figures of issues that were foregrounded in our opening plenary, which even though it wasn't explicit, was nevertheless premised on the idea that even uh, as print is present, manuscript is happily continuing its relationship with it. Uh, Zachary Lesser and Matt Cohen in a uh, presentation yesterday talked about the way in which bibliography, if done correctly, is corrosive. 
and what it corrodes is our received concepts of categories and classifications. And whether or not they intended it, all four of our papers today, it seems to me, are going after the term age of print. As we all know, we supposedly live in the digital age. And yet, as I look around my audiences, I note with delight the variety of writing paper and instruments we are all still using. And it seems to me what these four panels are all delightfully illustrate is the return to the complexity of the relationship between manuscript and print from medieval times into our own. So, questions? Yes. Um, Glenda Goodman. Um, thanks for four really fantastic papers. And I want to ask a question about archives and critiques of archives, which I think actually all four of you could answer, but I'll direct it to our last presenter. Um, um, I love the idea of the book as an archive, and I wonder how you see that <clears throat> engaging with critiques of archives as colonialist spaces in general. Uh, wow. <laughs> I know, good question. Uh, it, it is, it is. Um, so I need to wrap my head around that. I think in part what I'm seeing, so what, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of things that I think are in play here. So especially as an ethno-historian, which I, I consider myself somewhat to be, I was trained by ethno-historians, so I'm not really a historian of the book, but I've always been fascinated and attracted by books. One of the patterns that I see is that scholarship in my area has really um, moved away from using books and moved towards uh, using manuscripts, especially uh, manuscripts written in indigenous languages. Because in part, it seems that books represent colonialism, that they represent the conquistador, they represent Spain and imperialism. And I want to try to shift a little bit uh, away from that, especially with these types of examples, by looking at the commentary that individuals are including in these books that it, even though they are part of the state, uh, so to speak, they seem to be engaging with themes that other individuals are not, and they seem to be taking account of situations that cut across social and ethnic uh, and racial boundaries. And so in that way, I think uh, the book is archived functions to move away and decenter books from their kind of Western context into a much more new world context. Yes. Hi, this is for the first speaker about your fields and what distinction do you make between scribe and copyist? Sure, I didn't. That's for Emily. Oh, is that? No, that's, uh, that's yeah. Okay. I'm, I mean, I'm not making a distinction there. I, I think he's. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm using the words interchangeably just myself. I was just wondering if there was um, Yeah, I mean, I think there could be a distinction if you wanted to talk about scribes as having more, not just purely copying the text, but having some more agency. And we do see that in Bannister with the example of the added um, lines that I gave in the talk. Um, but generally, I'm, I'm not distinguishing between the two. But thank you. Yeah. And I will say uh, that I do distinguish uh, that scribe is the global term. Um, and copyist is a subterm along with author and other and illustrator and other kinds of terms because everybody every, there's a hand in all of them. I kind of a follow up for Mimi, but not the text. I was really blown away by the illustrations because <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very familiar, or um, you know, I'm not an art historian, but I'm familiar with medieval illustrations, right. and I'm less familiar but familiar with woodcuts. But his hand drawn 
like attempts at like woodcuts, I created an aesthetic that looked like neither of them. Yeah. And it was kind of like mind blowing. Like yeah. looked new, looked brand, you know, something brand new. And I wonder if you just had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. They don't look like manuscript illustrations from the medieval period. They don't really look like woodcuts. I think he's trying to imitate the woodcuts, and is maybe just not very good at it. Um, I it's better. Or, or, or I mean, perhaps so it's better. Funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> But he does individual, he, so my argument is that he draws on these woodcut images for his, um, the way he composes pictures. And he even draws in techniques in that he repeats the same image again and again and again. But he uses the fact that he can alter that image in ways that enhance the text, I think. There's one moment where there's this scene he repeats three or four times across the manuscript of just a wedding. It's a fairly common woodcut scene with a priest, the couple, and um, some onlookers, and in one of the images he repeats, the, the priest has his hands up like this, he's very surprised, <laughs> right? Um, so he's using the adaptability of the, the illustration to um, to sort of add to the woodcut space he's working in. But you're right, they're weird. So, hi, for Emily, uh, finding some these, this, these kinds of things you're looking for is incredibly difficult, clearly. Yep. Yep. Um, I have a question. Um, are we limited just to uh, English, as in England? Uh, or are you looking at American as well? Yes. Uh, have you looked, I mean, this is really bizarre, have you looked in the archives of places like uh, like uh, New Mexico, the um, state archive? So, um, I work, I'm kind of going state by state. Utah has been remarkably fruitful um, because they keep a whole bunch of never published anti-Mormon um, pieces of fiction on hand. Um, but it's been a process kind of going public record office by public record office in the UK context, going kind of state by state. Initial OCLC kind of keyword terms, kind of brute forcing those big aggregators and then going into individual collections. Um, part of the reason why, and I'll be at Texas A&M next month to get the initial metadata kind of cleaned up, is um, to become publicly visible as a person who's trying to look for this stuff, and I spend a lot of time talking to archivists. I just found out the University of Miami has a whole bunch of this material that they haven't yet cataloged. Right. Um, and that they think of as that weird stuff that we picked up because of handwriting, but it happens to include fiction. Um, so yeah, so some of it has been word of mouth, some of it has been systematic looking through finding aids. The terminology is a moving target for a lot of different catalogers. The, if I had been even more over time, I would have talked about RBMS controlled vocabulary and its usefulness or and limitations in describing this material. You're going down to short stories as well? Yes, yeah. yes. Oh. Uh, fiction, broadly conceived, all the way from scrappy fragments like Warren Hastings, the former governor general of India, wrote Richardson fan fiction, three pages, all the way up to 850 page ridiculousness um, of capacious, you know. And I wanted to come back to the initial question, just if I can have the, yeah. the, the luxury of saying, this is an unbearable, um, this is the phrase that I'm using in, my, in one of my chapters so far, it's an unbearably white archive, yeah. uh, because of who's allowed to write fiction and whose stuff is preserved and cared for and survived. Um, and that's one of the major frustrations of the project. That's why I was actually in New Mexico. I, I've yeah. seen uh, short stories that are on, actually that came out of, that were private things that were sold, and they're from the late 19th century. Awesome. Uh, by uh, 
clearly, you know, Spanish named authors. Yeah. Um, I think I, one of them I sold to, uh, to uh, uh, Yale. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I've seen them. I've also seen them for California. Mm -hmm. Uh, most of the ones I've seen are in private collections of consensus information. Yeah, yeah. The private collections and ex libris are my friends. Yeah. I get offers to buy a lot of things I can't afford. <laughs> so I think we're going to have time for one more question, and that would be you. A question for Sonia. Could you talk a bit about the kind of contemporary meaning of these scripts in the sort of history of occupation? Yeah. And uh, by contemporary, you mean 18th century? No, no, I mean, what, what meaning do those scripts have now, given the politics, the complex politics of that part of the world? Yeah, that, that's actually a very interesting question. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a very interesting question, because, um, so, as, as I was saying, um, the, so there have been, like, uh, th three uh, ways of marking the script. One was to say that there's an old Asmi script followed by a middle period where you have mixing of all of this. And finally, it kind of, all of these four scripts come together to produce the modern Asmi script. So that's how the kind of, um, uh, that's how the bibliographers, the philologists uh, frame their argument. But um, what is, also interesting here is that um, a lot of work has not been done on this. And the interest lies within particular circles. And here, the question about occupation, I think, is very interesting, because it's only within a particular um, discourse between 1880s and 1930s that you have the script question becoming important. And once it is kind of resolved by these, uh, by these stalwarts in a way, the script question gets easily sidelined. And you do not have much uh, writing on that after 1930s, 1940s, because all of this that, you know, the institutions, Kamrup Research Society or DHAS, all of their writings come from this early uh, 20th century period. And after that, you do not have much. When it becomes, again, very important is in the context of Assam movement in 1980s, which is when you have um, this entire effort uh, towards creating a Thayahom identity uh, from a particular uh, group of people in the region. And that's the point when you have these histories of Thayahom script being written, and you know that—that's uh, when you have, uh, you know, the, these uh, historians, local historians, saying that well, we had a different script as well, which goes all the way back to Thailand, which is close to Thailand, Thailand, present-day uh, Vietnamese script, and so you have that uh, being written at this point of time. But then these two kind of. Uh, remain as two different sides, uh, never quite put together within a particular historical investigation. And that's one of the challenges that I am trying to work out uh, in my uh, work, that 
you you have like two non-commensurable histories almost. That's how it has been put forward to you. But then, how can you read them together? Because that would then basically ask you to accommodate discontinuity within the historical uh, narrative. So that was uh, uh, one of my, I mean, that is one of my primary arguments. I'd like to thank the panel once again, and thank you. Yeah.